Welcome to Louder Than Words, the podcast that's about ideas that improve lives. Hello, I'm Jules Pretty. In this episode, new forms of engagement in education, how education is moving beyond the tell and listen model, the transfer model, how new thinking about how to learn is changing the lives of students, and how experience is as important as knowledge. It's a great pleasure to welcome our two guests this morning in the studio, Liam Jarvis from the Department of Literature, Film and Theatre Studies, Katie Wheeler from the Department of Sociology, both here at the University of Essex. Later, we'll hear from Bruce Hood at the University of Bristol about an immersive happiness course for undergraduates. So let's start like this and say, first of all, congratulations to you, Liam, for receiving the most innovative Teacher of the Year Award for 2021 at the Times Higher Awards. Thank you very much. Wonderful, (laughs) wonderful. Um, Every student, every child has access to massive sources of information, knowledge, facts, yet, of course, lack experience about the world. How should we be rethinking education in this age? What would be your kind of major priorities as we think about the the future for education. Liam, would you like to have a go? I think one of the biggest questions that still lurk is quite I suppose from my perspective, the discipline of theatre, quite what the discipline of theatre is going to look like post-pandemic. I'm not sure we can say post-pandemic yet, whether we're there, but certainly this idea of what an experience might look like within the pandemic was about remote experiences, being denied actually the experience of being together collectively, but also finding ways of of generating collective experience from very remote locations. So I think it's about learning the best of what we've learned from the pandemic and carrying that forwards into a post-pandemic future. And Katie, what about you? How do things look? Well, I think in the field of sustainability, we find that um, students um, are faced with an array of information about the things that they can do um, in order to save the planet. But actually, these these issues feel very big and we can feel quite apathetic in relation to that. And so I think one of our roles as educators is to try and get them to think about what they what they can do, try those things out and then reflect critically upon the efficacy of those things. Mm. So your expertise is in sustainability. Liam's yours is in writing, theatre and drama. Um, You're both seeking ways to help young, mainly young uh, people, to navigate their life and to kind of set things going. What what would you say are the are the kinds of things that we're learning from your practice in terms of impacts upon students themselves? One of the things is to, uh, the, one of the brilliant things about the pandemic is that it's really shaken up habitual ways of thinking and working. So one key thing that I've learned over the last year is that if you're asking students bedrooms, living rooms, domestic spaces to become a drama rehearsal room, there are all sorts of ethical and complex implications that come with that that will differ with every single student that you're teaching. So uh, there can be no assumptions about what that ask might mean and how possible that is for a student. So I think one of the really good things that's come out of the the pandemic is just better understanding the situation each student is faced with, really trying to individuate the learning process, attending and listening very, very closely to what you're learning, finding ways of gathering information about the obstacles that students are facing in their learning, which continue beyond beyond teaching remotely, and trying to find an overall strategy that that, uh, accommodates those very, very different sets of challenges that students 
students are faced with within the same kind of cultural moment. And this is a very tiring and challenging thing to do. It's also enormously important. So starting every uh, session, for example, by taking the temperature in the room and finding out, you know, what uh, what sort of week the students are having this week, what they're faced with, and uh, and c- encouraging, I suppose, amongst students that, that learning, I think, comes in all different directions in a drama classroom, certainly not just from the teacher, but from international students, from every student actually in that room who's bringing all their experiences to bear on whatever creative thing they might be making. So making sure that you're creating the right kind of environment where people feel that they uh, can trust one another, they can be honest and open and candid about the challenges they're facing and finding a way of building a community that can support the students to deal with those specific sets of challenges. Very interesting. So you've described a kind of process by which you're trying to create the space for individual students' kind of specific circumstances and their concerns at a particular time to be part of the learning process, understanding that, and then trying to use that in a, in a positive way. Absolutely, because I guess one of the things that uh, art making involves of different kinds is um, willingness to be <laughs> to find your voice, to find uh, to speak truth, uh, and to be vulnerable as well. And that that does require creating a, a circumstance uh, which comes with all sorts of challenges with what we might call a surveillance technologies. Things like Zoom, essentially, these are surveillance technologies, which is a very different sort of prospect to being hidden away in a darkened space where you, you feel no one's actually listening, no one can hear. Um, so, so how or, or indeed in a lecture theatre where, where nobody can see, you can't see the faces in the back. Absolutely. Yeah, so it yeah. applies to a number of different sort of teaching spaces. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's interesting to think about how you can circumnavigate some of those issues and still create a space where people feel comfortable to, to share those challenges. Mm-hmm. And how does that play out then when you're thinking about the, the, the individuals that are learning, Katie, um, and the setting of the, the social setting, which is the... The, the basis of your work in kind of sociology and sustainability, the structures of where we live and work and grow up influence what we do. Um, and you can influence those to change the learning environment, to, to work with a lot of individual selves, but they're part of a kind of wider structure. Yeah, I mean, in in my teaching around um, sustainability, one of the things that I try to do is I bring in what I call a sustainable consumption challenge. So I get students to commit to do something. And that doesn't have to be an individual behaviour change. They could also be involved in um, a local group. Um, I've actually set up a sociology sustainability, sustainable development group, um, which is comprised of both students and uh, members of staff. So we're trying to think about ways that we can green the sociology department. Um, so there's there's that element, but then also trying to get them to think about you know some of the barriers that they that they might face. So it's it's about I suppose bringing action learning into this this space. So I think that's it's moving away I suppose from those more didactic methods of teaching where we kind of tell our students that these these are the facts, um, and, and and that that's that and and, and move, move forward with those versus kind of okay. These are some things you could do. Have a go. What did you think? What worked? What didn't work? And then, okay, not just don't just stop there. Try again. 
So in a sense, what, what I'm hearing is a, is a kind of curation that you're both doing, that you're providing information and, and choosing that. I mean, that's the part of the skill of the educator is making those choices so that someone else doesn't have to kind of work their way through the weeds to find the, 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 you know, the lovely veteran tree or whatever to stretch the metaphor. Um, but, but you're also finding a way to get feedback to create those loops of learning so that people can understand what they're going through and also what their colleagues are going through is that is that how it's working yeah i think curation is definitely a, a key word there i think one of the initiatives that we've brought into drama is what we term intensive weeks over the summer terms uh, across multiple different modules and those intensive weeks are immersive experiences of inviting a, um, a professional company or theater maker to come and join us to invite students to not think about themselves as students but to think about themselves as professional practitioners uh, and to work with um, those companies under professional working circumstances from to five every day uh, preparing their work uh, and working with what might be a cutting-edge theatre company that they might be employed by in the future. So that thing of trying to embed, um, I suppose it's partly about embedding employability within the curriculum, but it's also shifting what we're assessing as well. So rather than assessing the outcome at the end of the week, what we're actually assessing is the skills that students are displaying through the entire week. Um, how, how attentive are they to the notes and the feedback they're getting from a professional director? How much have they listened and observed the the feedback from their peers do they turn up on time do they all of these sorts of what would be termed as soft skills but as we know in sort of theatre industry are, are really quite essential to in all probably in all workplaces to yes. be honest actually yeah mm. yeah absolutely well how, how's that then playing when you're talking to uh, students that have signed up for as you say sociology uh, course katie um and you're trying to kind of um, expose them to the challenges over sustainability, which are huge at one level, almost too big to, to deal with, and, and yet cutting it into pieces that individuals can act upon um, or indeed groups can act upon. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the big issues around sustainability, isn't it? It feels it feels so big, and um, when students are certainly in sociology, when we when we show them like the systems and the structures that kind of sustain our particular lifestyles, and you know, and that actually quite often it doesn't come down to individual choice. And actually, as a sociologist, that's really what I want to get across to them is that actually the individual on their own should not be responsibilized to to to, to change. The, the climate it has to be a partnership between governments businesses and a range of people of which you know communities of practice will and should play a role so there you know there is a space then for young people to think about themselves and the roles that they that they might take forward um in, in their future careers um and we have a, a you know a lot of advertising students who who take who take my module um and i, I always think you know that, that what i'm trying to do and trying to instill in them is um you know for them to reflect upon their role as advertisers in kind of shaping the norms that we all have around what constitutes the good life and so I hope that that's that's one of the things that that, that they get from the course. Very interesting and you mentioned this word community of practice which is very interesting because uh, by the choice of those words you're suggesting this is this is about groups of people doing things but it's also about practice experience the kind of doing of something in order to change 
either yourself or a group or indeed the world eventually it, it, and are you how, how does that working then the, the thing called the community of practice it's something I've, obviously I've been trying to to get going this year in, in sociology so we've um, we've we've established a sociology sustainable working group um, and so we've pulled together um, different students um, and staff and we're trying to um, work on a range of actions which some of which are I suppose um, more individually focused and but but because we're focusing it within a department context um, we are trying to make changes to our kind of collective systems of provision so one of the things I will be taking to my department meeting shortly um, is um, a, a, a an ask that we adopt a plant-based catering within within our department whether or not that will be received well I'm not sure but you you know I think you've got to start the journey somewhere haven't yeah, you yeah and 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 I think this is you know, sustainability is such a big challenge. And if you look at the way that a range of campaigns, both from, you know, in education, so you can see this in primary schools and secondary schools, you can see like the eco schools kind of philosophy, where you have a whole school approach, which is something that I think um, Department for Education is increasingly becoming aware of. So this is something that I think will become more common within, you know, secondary and earlier education, the idea that you don't just look at things on a subject level basis, you look at the whole institution and you look at trying to get different types of people working together and I think that's that is the challenge for sustainability because there are so many different um, I suppose priorities that people have in relation to to to, to the way that they do things um, and and we have to try and meet somewhere um, together yeah so you're describing a, a very immersive approach. I mean, if you have the whole system approach, different signals, such as on diet, which is not something that would be formally part of a program of education, but is your formal part of every working day, every living day, is thinking about what you're going to eat. If you get some some kind of reinforcement from that, then it's becoming more immersive. And you mentioned, Liam, this idea of immersion, which I think is interesting, community practice, uh, uh, doing things to change things to change the way that we are immersion as well you tell us a little bit about how you use this immersive idea around the vr headset work that you did you know, remotely bringing individuals into the same space almost liam is that how it was working during yes. during lockdown that came about as a result of necessity and catastrophe, really. <laughs> I suppose well, how that came about was we'd organise as part of an intensive week, which I mentioned, uh, Barbara Pearson, who was the artistic director of the Lakeside Theatre, had brought a really exciting theatre company called Petcha Mama into work in the theatre who create these extraordinary um, gig theatre adaptations of Greek classic tragedies. So most recently, um, Oedipus Electronica, but focusing rather on the story of Jocasta. So putting a changing the focalisation of whose story gets to be told slightly um, and then telling the story using a live band, all the, all the sort of excitement of, of shared space and being in a room together, that sort of visceral feeling of being in a theatre. So the the offer to the students was they would be working with Mella Fay from Mama for a week and even more exciting was the possibility at the end of this week the students would be part of the chorus of this Greek tragedy and some of those students would get subsequently employed to go on tour with an Arts Council funded production of that performance. And then, of course, uh, March, it, it, March hit in 2020. And, we, and of course, we know what happened. Uh, so the whole, the whole plan, and it had taken months of planning, 
came under threat. And the first thought was, well, do we cancel? One of the problems is that because we've taken the approach to embed vocational learning into the curriculum, that there's cancelling wasn't an option because um, it's worth part of the of the assessment weighting, the degree. So we had to innovate. We had to find a way to, to a different way to work. And this company had um, recorded some performances of theirs on using 360 de- degree cameras and then uploading the uh, footage to a, a digital streaming service provided by Liver. So we thought, well, okay, if we can't be in a theatre together, and well, the theatre was shut, um, and also students were quarantined in locations as diverse as uh, Wales and Colchester, and I think for, at its furthest, I think we had one student in Singapore. So we sent 25 VR headsets around the globe to the students so that we could find a way to sit together and to watch a performance together, even though we were wor- uh, working you know, uh, many thousands of miles apart from one another, and use that as part of our preparation. And then working closely with Mela to think, well, OK, a, a chorus, a Greek chorus on Zoom, how is that going to work? Um, and we came to the conclusion that it couldn't. So then it was about ripping up the plan and starting afresh and then thinking, well, OK, if we can't can't do that what we might be able to do is that thing that Mella does at the start of her process which is the dramatur- dramaturgy finding the shape of the story you want to tell and pitching it so inviting students to develop um, pitches sort of their elevator pitch that they might give to a prospective funder in the future for a contemporary Greek a- adaptation that draws on their own uh, personal interests their voice as writers and authors and finding their voice through through pitching work so it really came about through through, um, through survival instinct, I suppose, and tr- trying to find a way to give the students that experience. I suppose wedded to that, the ethical consideration that, of course, what was happening with um, theatre makers in the gig economy was that they were losing jobs left, right and centre. And we didn't want to, uh, after having worked very closely with Mela, we wanted to honour that um, relationship and make sure that the work happened. So finding ways to collaborate with external practitioners to think about uh, how we can work online in those states ages where we didn't really know what Zoom was in February 2020. which was also about future-proofing the industry in some respects as well, finding resilience for practitioners and giving them a space within the university to think about how collaboration can work online and, and then to take that learning into their own practice. So finding mutual benefit, I suppose, for external stakeholders and having a responsibility to uh, influence the the, fee- the wider field and profession in, in positive ways, but then also to include the students as part of that. One of the scary things, I think, about the pandemic is thinking, well, I I've been a professional theatre director for about 15 years and yet there's possibly nothing in my catalogue of experiences that actually fully prepares me for this. So I, I, it's really th- the students play a really central role in helping us to think about what, f- what the future of theatre might look like um, and drawing on their skills and their expertise and uh, of which they have lots of digital skills already just by virtue of the way that they engage. So drawing on that and, and learning from one another to think about what's possible and how we can create that sort of same immersive experiential learning experience, but in very altered circumstances. That's very interesting because, if again, if we go back to the sustainability challenges, those are about hugely altered circumstances. Um, I think I think I'd probably argue that we're seeing many of the signals from the future playing out today um, uh, in terms of. Um, uh, influencing the way that people live, the opportunities they have, the resources that are available, the need to shift towards completely new ways of doing things. And we, in the same way with the 
pandemic. We don't know what to do about that. We don't know what it's going to look like. We simply have to kind of play out experience um, uh, and and working together, I suppose, to try to kind of find a way through that. I mean, do, if you could if you could get um, uh, seven billion VR sets and everyone to wear one, you could do quite a lot, couldn't you, with with setting out how the world might look like and how people could act in a different kind of way, Katie. Um, but just kind of playing with that idea of of kind of immersing people in thinking differently and then working together. I mean, I think broadening our understandings of what we what we mean by sustainability, and, and as you were talking there, Liam, you were thinking, talking about futures thinking, and that is actually a real skill that we ought to be embedding within um, our, our our students. And if you look at um, the sustainable development goals and how those are being imagined in an educational context, um, there was a, a publication from Advanced HE and QAA which have talked about a range of competencies that we should be developing in in, in young people and adults. Um, um, and of those, um, critical thinking skills, futures thinking, um, working together um, and, and other types of competencies that we are all doing, actually, regardless of whether or not we're teaching around the environment. So one of the things that um, I, I'm, I'm planning to do as part of this um, uh, sociology sustainability project is to, to look at our existing curriculum and to see whether or not we are fostering some of those competencies already you know because uh, and to try and like highlight that to students that actually that is part of what our offering is is that we are we are teaching around these 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 areas that 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 they need to be prepared for um and 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 uh, and also um not excluding people because they're not they're not necessarily focusing on the environment because sustainability is much more than just just the environment so um and it could well be that it, that that having had certain experiences restricted or taken away from us in the last two years, that actually it's shone a light on what we've missed, what what's nice about kind of living and being with other people and the interactions that we have, a kind of common narrative across, across the last couple of years. Well, let's just slide away for a moment and hear from Bruce Hood of the University of Bristol about innovative undergraduate teaching, a course on happiness and how the course made its students happier. Well, welcome, Bruce. Thanks very much for coming on to talk about your innovative undergraduate course that you've been running on the science of happiness. Um, tell us a bit of how this came about and what you and they, the students, do differently. Well, the course really came about uh, in response to uh, a situation at Bristol where about four or five years ago we were having a real problem with student mental well-being. And um, my expertise is actually as a developmental psychologist, so I teach, uh, you know, child development. But I was increasingly alarmed at the preoccupation students had with performance and just the general malaise and, and anxiety about a life at university. And so I looked around to see if there's anything that could be done. And by coincidence, I found that a former student of mine, Laurie Santos at Yale, had just put a course on that year called Psychology in the Good Life, which was a course which was really... Um, geared towards more activities than simple lectures. So I thought that was a great idea. So I contacted Laurie and we shared uh, correspondence. And I put together a course very similar, which uh, combines the sort of theory, but also there's a lot of emphasis on practical activities to engage with, evidence-based activities from the fields of positive psychology. 
And we put that on really just as a pilot uh, on a lunchtime just to see if anyone would be interested. And we were overwhelmed with 600 staff and students turning up. So this clearly wasn't just the students, this was for the staff as well. And on the basis of that, we decided to move forward and create a credit-bearing course the following year for first years because they have the option to take open units. And so this was something that we could give them credit for. But I was very insistent and this is, what's, this is what makes the difference uh, in terms of other courses, that this course didn't have any graded examination. Um, that's what really distinguishes it, because it, it occurs to me that we've sort of gone down um, the wrong path in many ways by relying on performance outcomes. And the whole examination fiasco has got to a state now that we, we're, we're in this arms race against the students to try and outwit them each time with more and more ways of examining them. And given that exam performance is actually one of the critical issues in mental well-being, I really thought it would have been hypocritical to give a course and then give them a set of exams. So instead, what we did is we came up with an innovative way of awarding credit on the basis of engagement. And that was really uh, evidence that they were engaging in the activities, but they also had to meet in small groups, uh, which were led by graduates or uh, senior students. These are the so-called happiness hubs in groups of about eight, where they would discuss the content of lectures, but also discuss the issues at hand. And then they would be awarded for the attendance of this. They were also awarded credit for journaling. So they had to give a, each week, write something about what they had done that week. And at the end of it, there was a group project. So on the basis of all that kind of engagement, we could then award the credit. Very interesting. So there's a there's a mix of of imparting information, telling people about the science of happiness, the 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 key aspects of the course, but then a whole range of immersive experiences, things that students do around these happiness hubs, either as groups or as individuals, uh, which then contribute to the outcomes for the course. Could you tell us a little bit about some of those practical tasks? I mean, in the first yeah. instance, that's very different, as you said, to a lot of uh, formal education, particularly within universities and also prior, um, I suspect, as well. Um, but a very different kind of model. Um, uh, did people take to that well? And what sorts of practical tasks did they do? Well, I think when students saw the opportunity to gain credit for a course without examinations, uh, that was obviously very appealing. And, and But they were, I think they um, probably underestimated the commitment that's required. I think all too easily students have really got into the habit of preparing for exams, cramming and then sitting in exams and moving on to the next thing without actually retaining any information. Whereas what I wanted to do was to uh, come up with a scheme which really forced them to uh, commit, to start to manage their own time, to do all those sorts of life skills that we do you know, post-university when we go into the world of work, which are very valuable. Uh, time management is one of the most important things. And so really um, the actual content or activities was less important than the willingness to do it. But the activities were really based on fairly familiar uh, interventions from positive psychology. So writing a gratitude letter, um, a random acts of kindness, uh, we, we just did one last week, which was really relevant for them, which is how to prepare for public speaking. So we teach them a, bun a bunch of techniques to psychologically distance themselves from the threat of speaking in front of others. And that uh, we're evaluating, which is another thing about the course, which I think makes it very unusual, is that actually the research is ongoing. 
And that's a big selling point. We tell the students that what we're doing with them will influence and shape further reiterations of the course. So I think it, it seems to be very relevant to them in terms of practical skills and how to also benefit fellow students down the road. So they know that their engagement is going to be changing what you're planning to do in the future, lead to improvements in the course, but also a, a greater depth of understanding of the of the things that they bring to the table with all their diversity. I mean, as you said, with 600 people being interested in the pilots, I mean, that's a that's a phenomenal measure of of the 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 kind of latent or or very explicit interest that people would have in something uh, uh, around happiness in of itself. I think that's that suggests that this is opening doors in the way that that other forms of education simply haven't been able to do so. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I mean, clearly there's a very tangible benefit to improving your mental well-being, but these are life skills which we could all benefit from. So it's not a therapy, if you like. It's not for people who are feeling miserable. Uh, they're just general um, bits of wisdom that actually I've benefited from myself. And I, I started off slightly skeptical, to be honest. Uh, it just sounded a little bit all too tree-hugging for me. But we have every year run a, a very thorough analysis of it, statistical analysis of it, and every year we find there are measurable benefits of it. Now, whether they're sustained or not, I think that comes down to the individuals. But certainly I am still getting correspondence from students took of course, three years ago, and um, they've really found it very uh, transformative for them. So I think that it really comes down to the individual, how much they're willing to engage with that. But in the in the format of a course, it does seem to improve the group all overall. And as I say, these are just general skills to do with time management, to do with um, just getting things into context, into perspective, uh, trying to, if you like, counter the obsession with performance, which I think is uh, where we've gone wrong with higher education. I think we've become an extension of school in many ways. And that is unfortunate because it creates a, a disconnect from what students are expecting when they enter university. They think in many ways it should be this uh, continuation of what they've had as, as uh, at school. And I, and I don't think that's, well, my personal opinion, I don't think that's what university is all about. And uh, those students who were uh, in the happiness hubs being asked to talk to a stranger have a random act of kindness write a gratitude letters you said was there ever any any kind of sense where people then said all oh, that as you just hinted at that sounds a bit cheesy to me you know i'm not yeah. sure if that will work whereas actually the evidence shows that 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 being kind to other people uh, makes you feel better as well as them and and sometimes we just have to be encouraged or told to do it and then reflect upon it and then think oh actually yes i can see what what kind of impact that's had uh, did was there kind of were, were students compliant having kind of taken on the course uh, part yeah. of the of the of the story being well there are no exams but we're expecting you to do these other things it's a very different well, kind of, of story, isn't it? Yeah, you're right, Jules. So and one of the things we did actually in one of our more recent analysis is we um, we asked them to identify to what extent they thought this course would change their expectations before they'd taken the course. So we wanted to make sure that we weren't preaching to the choir. Uh, 
We wanted to make sure that there were some skeptical students among that. And what we found was that those attitudes had no influence on the outcome. So in other words, everyone benefited from it, which suggests that even though they may sound a little bit hooky and tree huggy, um, actually, if you do it, it works. And what we do in the course is we explain why it works. So, for example, you were, you were mentioning talking to strangers. Um, there's a whole set of brain mechanisms which are triggered during social interactions. And these empathizing mechanisms are quite surprising at times and very powerful. A lot of the time we think we will not enjoy social interaction. Um, we, we feel, it, especially as British, you know, very reserved. But actually, when you're in a situation where you have to do it, it turns out to be actually quite pleasurable for many people, not everyone. And we do make a point of saying that we've got a range or toolkit of various activities. Not everything is for everyone, but they should try everything and at least find out what they're most comfortable with. And quite often, it does surprise you what you find to be very enjoyable. So is there is it fair to say in terms of a shorthand that, that um, students who have taken the course have on average finished it feeling happier you don't know whether that's going to play out for uh, forever but but you've had feedback years down the course the the line where people at least are saying well we remember that and we thought it was very good and it changed me in the following kind of way which gives you some hope that it that it was a a, a course that that provided a a, a shift, um, a step change in the way that people saw themselves in the world and engaged with others, as you've described. Yeah, I think there are several. I think there are several benefits about the course. Um, yeah, so every year we run the course, we run a, an analysis of the outcome, and we get these group effects. I would, I would caution though. I think positive psychology has become a bit of a bandwagon, and I think it's been oversold. Uh, the, the effects you find are significant. But they're minor rather than major. Okay, so in terms of effect sizes for any scientists listening to this, the effect sizes are mild to moderate. All right. But of course, that's average across the whole group. Within that, there are individuals for whom it has been very transformative. And I'm very happy that it works overall, but I'm also extraordinarily happy that there are some individuals for which this becomes a different way of thinking. But I also believe the value of the course is to try and broaden the experience for students at the university. This is open to not just psychology students. In fact, we're trying to reach non-psychology students because this is something we could all do from and benefit from. And I, and I feel that um, the activity, the engagement, the contribution to the experience are all valuable because it makes it relevant. And I think that's part of the problem with a lot of education is often that uh, students don't see it as relevant. Um, and of course, if they don't see anything as relevant, they won't engage with it, they won't take it. So we've got to keep bearing in mind that this is something which must appeal to the curiosity as much as the emotions, as much as the intellect. Well, Bruce, thank you very much indeed. We've been hearing about the Science for Happiness course at the University of Bristol from the School of Psychological Science spread um, across the university and hearing about its impacts. Bruce, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Jules. Well, welcome back. Let's let's have a think then about um, this this understanding the self so both of you are talking uh, both about um, of course working with individual students because that's how you come to an institution uh, but also about how to get people thinking about engaging with others and doing stuff together um, uh, we, we, we've long understood that education is not just about the knowledge it's about the experience that goes alongside that but I think the experience often gets gets dropped and kind of played out rather kind of quietly in the background um, uh, how will we 
can we navigate this kind of confusing boundary between the individualism, the burdens of responsibility, the moral failure that's often put weighted onto individuals? You know, if you're dealing with sustainability um, and you make one small step, you could argue that it's one step on a on a long path. That's very helpful. But people may also then feel burdens for the things that they're not doing. You know, if you say, well, I'm being responsible about diet and someone else might say, but are you still flying then? And that kind of makes us feel bad. So so that kind of is the space of the individual, but also the structures of organisations, the structures of education we can work on and change to influence the individual. So that balance between the individual and the group, I suppose, is what I'm saying. And where does the immersion experience bit fit in the middle of that? Liam, just kind of explore that a little bit more with respect to theatre and um, drama and writing and so forth, the kind of work you do. My interest in drama has always been at heart as a fundamentally collaborative medium. And I've always been interested, I've never tended to work as a writer in theatre independently, although I have written scripts of my own. But my interest has always been in collective acts of writing, collaborative acts of writing, partly as a way of sort of challenging my own ideas and challenging, uh, and, and, and it's a challenge also. Often I think theatre companies are partly a, a utopian idea for the, you're creating within a company of people the world are something that you'd like to see more widely so the politics of your company is almost a utopian vision for what you'd like the the politics beyond the company to be and that's something that's always excited me about devised practices and devising and I'm going through this experience at the moment with my students who are working towards collaborative um, acts of theatre making I suppose the place where we start with devising is to draw up a contract together about what we what students expect from me as a teacher um, about what they expect from each other and about um, a sort of modus operandi of how we want to work together, which will change every single year depending on the, the makeup of the students in the room. I suppose this idea that you know who you are and what you bring matters. That, you know, we don't, yeah. The students, of course, are not uh, tabula rasa; they're they're coming with all sorts of experiences. So part of those early classes are about understanding what those uh, experiences are and what the skills students already possess are, but then how they can find ways to collaborate um, and all of the challenges that come with collaboration which is incredibly difficult, (laughs) of course. Absolutely. And presumably, if you're then getting students from lots of different backgrounds, social, economic, geographical, whatever, um, if you're listening to their experience and saying that's part of it, the broader the diversity there, the better. The more diversity in a room, in a space, the more reflective it is of this kind of wonderful, diverse, fantastic world that we live in. You've got a microcosm of that, which actually is part of the creative juices that make the thing the work. Absolutely, it's all enriching. I remember distinctly when I taught an MA in directing and in a a previous institution I had one student join me who um, had retired who was a mature student and had spent his life working in a telemarketing company in Delhi and then decided to retire and really wanted to re-explore his passion for theatre directing. But all of those experiences were brought into the room of managing a large telemarketing firm and were all really enriching of the discussion and the room and I think that's absolutely right the more sort of diverse the experiences it it, it ultimately um, is reflected in the possibilities of what can be made and the exposure I suppose the audiences will receive of different kinds of voices different kinds of experiences it's enriching also of the, that audience beyond the room when we're looking to make something f- always for someone else so thinking about how can we draw on those, that diversity of experience and 
different priorities as well and, and find a way of accommodating those within a piece of work such that uh, one voice doesn't... Uh, I suppose making something that, that's, a, that's a pluralist is hard because you've, you've got to listen to everybody and you've got to find a form that fits um, multiple sets of narratives and voices. And that's part of the excitement and challenge of devising. You have no idea what shape the performances you're reaching for because you don't yet know who everybody is. So I never start a devising class ever thinking that I uh, quite know how things are going to play out. It's always a, um, in flux, I suppose. There's always a lot of uncertainty about what, where the work is going to lead. So I've had performances in in the forests that have taken place, which felt like absolutely the right location. I've had headphone works that have taken people on guided tours around Colchester. I've had, and it's really finding a, I think, was it Beckett said, find a form to fit the chaos. I think that that's often what we're looking for. So things that often don't necessarily look an awful lot like what people might imagine when you hear the word theatre. Um, and also a question of accessibility. Who is the audience that this work is for? And how, what form does this work take such that you might meet them, that you might reach them? So never really any assumptions about the particular uh, way in which we express our ideas beyond thinking about how do we reach the audiences that we that we really need to be talking to or sharing this work with yeah katie and you've got a breadth of students who are taking the courses who are specifically interested in the sustainability angles that that you can teach and and help people learn about um but it's also true that most a large majority of young people are concerned about sustainability issues of course you should be because it's about people's futures and it also ties into social justice structure of of power structure of institutions a whole range of other things that often is not immediately apparent when one uses that term sustainability but but it's you're, you're picking up a range of prior experience that's coming into the room and then using that in a in a positive way yeah absolutely so um on the course that i teach we have students who come from a range of different backgrounds and i think one of the things when we're talking about individual consumer behavior is realizing that it's socially shaped you know it's shaped by the the systems of provision that we have access to to cultural norms and 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 the meanings that we attach to consumption um and if you've got people in the room who are coming from different backgrounds different countries then they're bringing those those socially shaped understandings of consumption to the room okay so what um, so you're hearing then that actually what you thought was an individual choice is actually something that was culturally and socially cha- shaped and you could then use that to kind of highlight this as as part of the challenge that that, that we all face in, in in relation to kind of transitioning to, to towards a more sustainable future but i mean on the point that you said around um you know students are are very concerned about sustainability i mean i think they are but i also think that their education before they arrive at university around these issues is very lacking actually um so my my research my project that i'm working on at the moment um is about looking at educational resources that are aimed at primary school children and how um young people are being educated around sustainability And, and what you see there is a very limited image of what what kind of action might be possible you know it's limited to things like turning off the lights and you know turning the tap off when you're te- when when you're brushing your teeth um and and not really equipping students with the 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 complexity i suppose of of the issues but also empowering them to feel that they can actually have an influence upon these things so i mean i i find that levels of knowledge about these these issues really vary 
uh, and that actually the first few sessions we really are just trying to bring students up to speed about things like the climate emergency which perhaps they it's been going on in the background and yes we've had the school strikes but of course the people who participate in in those are, are were already very educated in in this sphere so there and there are inequalities of access in relation to this that we have to be aware yeah. of so so by we could easily uh, be become mistaken to assume that because a 12 year old girl sat outside of parliament in stockholm and then shortly afterwards a million children were taking fridays off school that that that's a broad view and a broad understanding but it's not i mean it's kind of a strong view amongst those who are participating but there are a lot of other people who aren't at that kind of that place so you've got to kind of help people through that is it's are we talking about agency as well here about giving people the sense of of what's possible and that they can lead the kind of change as well um i mean it, it there was a, a very famous prospective study from um, from Harvard by George Valent following um, populations across the life course to see what happened to them. And when he spoke to older people, um, he and then tracked what happened after he, he was kind of it's part of the study. He asked them a question, which was, uh, what have you learned from your children? And a large number that those who say who were kind of immediately their immediate response was, well, not at nothing at all. Of course, he then found out that those people who learned nothing from their children actually lived 10 years less long as the people who were very open to the knowledge and understanding of other people who in this case happened to be their children. So I think there is something about being that some people find it quite difficult to assume that others have something in interesting to say and if you're in a powerful position of let me paint the old model of standing simply up in front of a lecture theater and telling people and then rushing away afterwards well actually you've both been describing something very different here about agency about listening to others about kind of control in the in the educational space which maybe takes us to somewhere different when we think about education the point you made about listening to children was particularly of interest to me because uh, I'm on the board of a, of a children's theatre company called Theatre Rights, um, who uh, again came in on one of our intensive weeks. Sue Buckmaster is actually the, uh, an honorary graduate of Essex and graduated from the Lifts Department in 1997, um, but made, has made some extraordinary work. So, for example, a show called Bank on It After the Economic Crisis, which basically took over a, a site and invited students into a, a bank and was, uh, rather than making an angry show about bankers it was a piece that was inviting um, young children to think about if the vaults are empty and there's no money where would you place value and what would you fill it with so creating a space to listen to children and more recently a show about plastic waste and sustainability so when this company came in to work with our students they were working with uh, waste plastics that they found around their home and then turning those plastics into puppets to create a show that was about the education of, of uh, and stu our students had done various research projects about um, their own relationship to waste and again the international students were bringing stories that I knew nothing about from their from their home countries about their home country's relationship to waste products so there so how theatre makers can play some role in that and I think one of the exciting things that came out of the pandemic are new ways of thinking about touring as an activity can be quite uh, uh, sort of materially demanding and not necessarily the most environmentally friendly way of, of circulating and disseminating work 
work. So finding new models of touring, so showing without going, sort of disseminating MP3 players that can be uh, create a sort of collaboration somewhere in the world without the artist actually having to travel there themselves. So thinking about how we can lower our carbon footprint. I make a, a thing with devising called a suitcase show, which is everything they make has to fit within a suitcase for touring so that they don't have to hire a van to tour. They can just go on public transport. Um, so I think uh, I was really interested to hear Casey talk about it. We must talk more because I'm really interested in the role that artists and theatre makers can play, both in enshrining and embodying those principles and structures and ways they make work, but then also how they are communicating with audiences and young audiences, especially about an agency, I think, is key, isn't it? Letting people know how uh, how they can be uh, empowered to, to make those sorts of changes. So I, was, so I think that's that's really key in, in theatre making as well, actually, issues around sustainable, sustainable practice. Thank you. That's very interesting. So we've heard about cur- curation and about agency and, and suggestions about how the boundaries in your disciplines in particular, but in other ones, are being pushed as you bring kind of immersion and experience within the 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 field of view when it comes to thinking about education what what would be your top two or three wishes or hopes for your disciplines if you wanted to speak broadly in that kind of way or perhaps just in in thinking about kind of innovation in education engagement with um with uh students and information and with each other and and that's kind of listening that you've both both described what what are your top two or three hopes I think probably making no assumptions of, a, of returning to a pre-pandemic normality in practice. I think one of the one of the brilliant things again about internet-based practices is that the, the conference within the last eighteen months has become enormously more accessible to international delegates. That's something we don't want to lose. So I think for me, a, a big issue is about that that we we're we're sort of entering a really exciting phase of renewal and I think it's about really thinking what can we what what are the best thing experiences that we've had that we should be keeping hold of from our learning from the pandemic and then what are those things we want to salvage and retrieve that we lost and sitting in the theatre the other night actually for for only the second or third time in a while and watching a student performance was just electric (laughs) so I think okay I'm sort of beginning to sort of remember remember what this was all about exactly Yes. yes hey Katie what about you I mean, I think we've spoken a, a little about, um, you know, agency and action learning, but in many ways, these jar with the ways that we normally um, uh, assess our students. Because with an action learning cycle, it's it's appropriate and, and you learn if you fail. However, failure in the current academic educational context is is something that is not possible so I suppose what I mean if we're looking for innovations in the future then that would be something that I would like to see would be that that if we are going to embrace things like action learning then you know is there a possibility that 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 students can learn from a mistake and it not absolutely affect their future which I think is the fear at the moment because we are we are in that system of you know league tables and measurements which is so out of sync with where we really ought to be Perfect. Thank you very much. So we've heard a lot about renewal. Um, Thank you very much indeed to Liam Jarvis and Katie Wheeler. Uh, Much appreciated. Thank you. That was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can.